I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Neve Campbell. She published her debut novel, This Happy, last year. It was shortlisted for the On Post Irish Book Award. We discuss why she's learned that she needs people around her when she's writing. Also, why she adores precise language and why it has to serve a purpose. And you can hear what she wants from those who she writes. For me, a character who was nice would just bore me and I wouldn't be interested in them. And if they were just constantly a victim... I wouldn't be interested in them. So with Alana, because she is such a difficult character and uh, she's quite unapologetic and greedy and she has appetites and she really is very, very strongly motivated by sex. That was a big point in this book is I wanted to talk about lust, about female lust as a legitimate trigger for plot. I think I got on post right. I'm sorry if my Irish pronunciation is terrible. I looked it up and everything, I promise. Uh, Stick around, it's a brand new episode with Neve Campbell on this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along, it's Writer's Routine, where we take a look inside the working day of some of the most successful authors around to figure out how they organise their time to get the ideas from their head onto the page. Uh, This week it's Neve Campbell. Now I've said this before on the show, Uh, there is something about Irish writers, isn't there? There's something about the turn of phrase, uh, the way that they craft a story which which just draws me in. Now Neve has written many short stories. She won an Irish Times Prize for a 4,000 word short story called Love Many. And then last year she published her debut novel called This Happy. It's all about Alana who falls in love with an older man and it's about how the memories of that affect everything else, affect the rest of her life. We talk about how she moulds plot into her focus on words and her obsession with character and language. Also, we chat about the balance between introverted and extroverted work and what lockdown has taught her about how she works best and how she needs people around her. You heard earlier how she finds normal characters boring, so we discuss how she gets into her characters to make sure they aren't. Uh, And and also, uh, we talk about why she's quite pretentious and a little bit snobby about genre but it really focuses her into the story that she wants to write. I think that might be a little uh, interesting of an answer for you. But I think it's really fantastic to have loads of different views on writing and genre on the show. 
and I think you'll really enjoy her. Neve's a fantastic chatter. She really gets storytelling. She thinks through it all, and I loved speaking to her for an hour or so. Uh, we kick things off, as we always do, with what Neve Campbell sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Well, at the moment, I'm in the box room of the apartment that I'm renting. And so I have a little desk with a window, uh, which is at the back of the house and very cold. And I can see out my window a very large screen of fir trees at the end of the garden. And uh, that's it. There's just a bed in here. There's bare walls. And uh, I moved in a couple of months ago in lockdown. I haven't really unpacked hugely. But my main view is uh, are these trees. Now, if you've not quite set up the box room as you kind of want it to yet because you're still unpacking I, I guess what will it become when you've got carte blanche to design it as you want almost and you know it's rented or whatever um but are you going to put creative things all around you what what will you have there to inspire you I will probably hmm I don't know if I'm going to keep using this room funnily enough <laughs> I'm not sure if I like it uh, when I wrote most of this happy, it was in another house. And I also did all of the edits in an office that I had in the university where I worked. And what I'm hoping for is that soon the lockdown here will lift and I'll get to go back to my university office or work in cafes because I'm not so mad about working in this room. So I'll probably leave it more or less as it is. And it'll kind of do for now. But I'm sort of thinking in the summertime, I'd really rather not be writing at home. What is it about the room that's not doing it for you? I guess I've just been here in lockdown and constantly here every single day. You know, there's no texture to the day. And although it is great, I'm very fortunate to have the space. Um, I don't, I, I kind of feel like I'm doing everything in it. I do emails in it, teaching, Zoom teaching, all of my busy work and my actual admin work for my other job, uh, as well as writing. So it just feels... Um, like it's not a creative space. It's not a space that's a haven of any kind. And I don't particularly like it. I don't know, maybe it's a it's a vibe thing, but I, I would prefer to write with more people around me. We, we, let's unpack that. I mean, what is it about, I guess, what is it about the people around you? Not just that. If you were to design, I guess, a perfect writing space for you, realistically, I mean, I'm not going to chuck you on the beaches of Maui or something like that. Um, how would it, how would it be? What, what do you need around you? Do you feel to, to make yourself creative? I guess, um, I don't need much. I'm pretty simple. Uh, I just have my laptop or I have a paper and a notebook and I sometimes put sort of aphorisms on the wall. I might put little, um, stickers up or sort of motivational quotes and things. Uh, I did that with with this happy in a big way. But what I need most of all is I need to be able to close the door and speak to other people. So it's the it's the isolation of lockdown that is the problem. So when I was editing this happy, especially and doing the sort of after I finished writing it, I um I was in a, a university, so I would go for coffee with my colleagues, or I would go for out into the city, into Dublin, and meet people. Uh, or I would go to yoga class quite a lot, or I'd meet someone and go to the cinema. So the, the the creative space is, it doesn't need to have much in it, I suppose just the bare tools. And uh, But what it really needs to be is surrounded by uh, a mixture of other people. It's the monotony that's the problem. Writing is very solitary, so any space needs to be, I need to be able to break that monotony up easily. 
Now, there's always been a difference between extroverts and introverts, and an extrovert is you know someone who gets their energy from being around other people and i would guess a generalization is that many writers are introverts i know that's not the case but just for the sake of this when did you kind of realize that you that's how you worked best that you that you take and that you get energy you get vibrancy from being around company surprisingly i think this is when i wrote my first book so i would say that i was an introvert most of the time but when I got my, um, I got a bursary to write my first book from the Arts Council here in Ireland, and I quit my job to write full time for a year. And so for the very first time, I was at home during the day when everyone else was at work uh, writing. And this was what I wanted, but it was quite a shock to the system to cope with that level of isolation. And I would find that I wouldn't be able to write. You know, if I went for days just doing nothing but writing and not really seeing anyone, I would just run out of steam. And I realized I actually did need to be brought out of myself and to see people and forget about it and and to sort of break the intensity. So it was when I got what I wished for, which was full isolation to write, I realized that I actually didn't want it as much as I'd thought. And I'd always thought that being surrounded by people and distractions was preventing me from working. But I realized then that it really wasn't. Um, And I actually needed those people. So that's why it's been quite hard in lockdown to write creatively. And I'd imagine a lot of writers are saying this because the removal of texture from life and spontaneity means that even if they're working on material that has nothing to do with the year 2020 or 2021, they're struggling to think of anything new to say in the writing. It becomes very monotonous. So it was when I did the first, when I did this sort of deep dive solitary work of the first book and realized a couple of months in that the solitude was a problem and I needed to solve it a bit that, um, that I realized that. Going forward then, how much has this last year possibly helped the way you write in the future? Because it's made you aware of what it is you need to actually tell stories. Yes, it's been so helpful because this, in addition to being pandemic year and the first time that I've ever lived alone because I was in house shares before this, it's also been the year or last year rather was the year that I brought my first novel out and became a public figure. So my writing was in the world and I was being interviewed and so on. And that's a a really interesting um, psychological shift for writers. So it's kind of underrated. And, uh, but it would also happened in lockdown. So I had this combination of Realizing I was making this into a career now, which is possible, which I was going to be able to do, but I had to manage myself and manage the public side of things and manage the feedback and the readers and the kind of energetic explosion that comes from having an audience. So I became a lot more organized in my writing and I have more realistic grasp about what I can achieve now. Um, like I don't want to spend more than two years on a book ever. You know, I don't want to go into the abyss and spend 10 years fixing something. I'm a little bit more forgiving about the idea that a book is never perfect, but you still have to let it go at some point. And you need to bring people into it. Editing is important. Readers are important. Uh, my main thing that I'm interested in writing about is interpersonal relationships and, and the energy between people. So needing to have people around you is part of that because you can't understand human behavior if you're not watching people. So I suppose the, um, I would have had a a very, um, uh, I've had a sense of the artist as this figure removed from society or above things and not integrated. And this purity was necessary to write, but through the experience of writing the novel and then adapting to the, the world of being a public figure when the novel comes out, I've realized that this isn't necessarily the case at all and that you can 
you can be a lot more integrated into the world and this can make you still a, even a better artist than before. It's amazing. The extroverted thing is strange. I, I'm, I've always known that I've been quite loud. <laughs> and then like halfway through lockdown, I remember like re- like having a deep yearning for something and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then it was just it was just like people. And then as soon as I was around people, I was just so much... <laughs> so much more alive oh, and, yeah. and I think that's kind of been massively underappreciated it at times. I mean, I know, yeah I know it's been a horrible year for many many mm. people but and with you know without plonking myself at the center mm. of this thing I think it's been so underappreciated it has it, it's really very difficult to keep on going in isolation or with such a minimum of, of just mixing or, or anything it, it's yeah I think people are reaching the end of what they can tolerate I know I am and as someone who can abide by their own company for an unusually long time and does a job that's very, very solitary, uh, I just don't want to keep this solitude up at all. And I think it's going to be hard for people to readapt back into mixing because some people, in order to cope with the solitude, maybe went into the abyss. Um, you know, when you write a book, you stand the risk of going into the abyss all the time because you're on your own thinking about things or trawling through your own past. And it can be very uh, wobbly in terms of mental health, any kind of art is like that. So I think I already knew going into lockdown that, you know, embracing solitude and getting to know yourself comes with a lot of risks for just kind of becoming a bit unstable. So you need to watch that. And we all need people. We all need mixing. And it's not, it sounds like a platitude to say we need that, but it's a very serious, urgent need. We really do need to be able to start mixing more with other people soon. Um, let me take you back to your room, Neve. There's nothing else going on, but on the on the desk where you write, uh, have you got anything there? And also take me to the screen. Tell me what you're writing on. Ah, uh, on the desk, there are two cactuses or cacti and uh, there's a box of pencils and bulbs and uh, flashcards and hand cream and stamps and rulers and just various uh, stationary debris. And that's all. Um, on the screen, I'm doing the final, and I mean like the final 24 hours of edits on my second novel. And I have a, a long sequence I'm, I'm writing at the moment. So what I write on is a very uh, old three-year-old Dell laptop that I was given by Maynooth University when I started working there three years ago as my standard laptop. And uh, my contract finished with them and they never came for the laptop. So I just still use that. And it's uh, it's huge. It's very heavy. I can't really carry it. So it's kind of old dino laptop. And that's really all there is. It's me, the cacti, the dino laptop and uh, a box of crap. Um, now, what are your, uh, we, we get niche, what are your font opinions, Neve? What do you like to write in? Oh, this is important. Um, my first novel I wrote in Garamond very specifically Garamond because it's like it's in the ear it's in the I don't have a Garamond oh I'm on it's sort of it's like Times New Roman in that it's internationally respected almost invisible font it doesn't draw your attention to it but it's a slightly more refined version of Times uh so I was writing almost exclusively in Garamond but recently uh for the second novel I switched to Baskerville because it's a little bit more playful and this novel is supposed to be funny so I was trying to make the font slightly more amusing, but I find it very hard to write in Times. When I see Times New Roman these days, I think it's funny. It draws attention to itself as a font for me, which is kind of absurd because I made a point of not using it for ages. So I'm going between Garamond and Baskerville. I haven't ever found another font that I could tolerate. Just those two. I have to say, when you when you see something in Garamond, I'm looking at Garamond now, when you see it, it feels 
like it's important you know like this is it's it, it's something you know what i mean that is probably why i liked it i know i was told to use it for academic stuff when i was doing my phd that's how i learned of the existence of garamond and another thing i do is have very wide margins and everything is is uh justified so those elements wide margins justified in garamond it makes it look very solemn and very important and uh yeah i guess i do like that it feels nearly finished as you're going along um you, we lastly, I guess, on this part of the chat, with your big clunky uh, Dell, but you say that you want to go and work in cafes and write amongst people. How is that going to work? You lugging around this massive hunk of junk? Yeah, it's it's something I've been thinking about. I'm going to have to branch out and buy myself a laptop, which I deeply resent because working in academia, I usually get given them. <laughs> but I might have to buy the bullet and buy a little one. I think I'm going to have to do that. Yeah, I'm going to have to get over it. I'm waiting for the shops to open. I hate tech. I don't like tech. So I want to go into a shop. But like I remember I bought, I bought a laptop. The last time I bought a laptop was about seven or eight years ago. And uh, I just went into a shop and said, look, I'm a writer. I need something light and uncomplicated. Don't talk to me about gobbledygook. I don't care. Just do it. And then this person sort of understood completely, took this small blue laptop away for an hour, gave it back to me and it was wonderful I had it for four years so I'm going to do that again Let's just walk into a PC world and say here's my really basic need satisfy that need for under 700 euro <laughs> and I don't want to talk about it <laughs> I find it very stressful <laughs> well I usually get up very early usually about six which is kind of just a natural thing when I wrote my first book I used to get up at four deliberately to write very early but I don't do that anymore because it's quite antisocial but I still get up quite early and I prefer to write without distractions immediately. And that is sometimes difficult if I'm teaching because I have the sense that, you know, there are emails or there is student work to do. But ideally, I just don't think about that. And I don't even turn the Internet on. I just have me in the laptop and I will start working straight away. And I'll, I'll usually drink a lot of coffee when I'm writing and I'll, I won't eat for a while. I'll just drink the coffee. So it's quite it's quite uh, minimalist. And I managed to keep that up for a couple of hours on a really good day. I might go till 10 or 11 uh, managing that and then I'll crack and I'll have to eat. And then once I've eaten, things get a little bit less focused. And I might do some editing, but I'll generally, I'll generally leave it there. When I'm not teaching, uh, that leaves the afternoons free. And what I, in lockdown times, do a lot of is meditating and walking and I'll call people and I'll read. And in non-lockdown times, I went to the cinema in the afternoon a lot. Uh, but again, I will go out, meet people, do something, you know, go to the theatre, fill the rest of the day with things that are not the writing and keep the writing to the very early morning. And I don't really plan what I'm going to write. I just sit down and go for it. They say the best thing that you can do is leave, leave your writing at a place where it's good, you know, at the end of one session so that you come back to the other session happy. But I don't always really do that. I kind of just go as far as I can go. And this will either go slowly. I'll either produce very little or I, you know, I'll mess around with three sentences for two hours or I'll write 2000 words. It depends entirely on where the book is. It's kind of very flowy. And I'll do this maybe four days a week, five days a week max, depending on what else I have going on. But in terms of time, I don't spend sort of a six hour day doing it. It's really sort of bursts of three or four hours in the morning, a few days a week. I will accomplish a novel over the course of a year and a half or two years, I found. So 
I do it like that. And then that leaves the rest of the day kind of free. But if I have something planned for later in the day, I will kind of find it hard to work. I really need a very blank mind to work not worrying about anything else. That's why I do it in the morning because you can get away with things very early in the morning. No one sort of wants anything from you at that point in the day. So I think that's where the habit came from of working very early. You mentioned earlier that you d- you never want to take longer than two years on a book. And I mean, with the the stunning success that this happy has had so far, I imagine there'll be calls for many more Neve Campbell books. Um, do you feel that in in the future you might have to... I guess, be more regimented with yourself to make sure you get these things out and get them out on time? I guess, yeah. I mean, I hope there would be a demand. That would be wonderful. Um, Because the second one is done and it's going to be out in February, that buys me a bit of time. And I know what the third one's going to be. So I've already started that one in my mind. But after that, I don't know. I think realistically, I might have to take some time off from writing a book and maybe not be writing a book for a while. I mean, I can't imagine what this will be like, but it seems realistically speaking, I'm going to have to, uh, or accept that it will take me years and years to write one instead of two. I just found I couldn't find myself interested in any idea for longer than two years, but I have been writing a book, sort of writing a book or some version of a book since 2017. So I probably need to take a break um, after number three, maybe. We'll see where I am in my life at that point. So I often think, um, you know, this is a routine you couldn't really sustain if you had children. And uh, I suppose I think at this point in my life, before I have children, I get as many books out as I can and then see what happens in the latter half of my 30s. (laughs) So I sort of have a vague plan about that. But I don't think that I could put one out every two years for the rest of my life. No, it's just been two years, you know, per book so far. What's interesting about that is is that is different to how some authors think if you if you were a more, a more genre-based author say crime or thriller uh you you know you, you'd finish one and you'd be straight on into the next one and you'd be 30 books down the line whereas i i imagine that the the second and third book that you've got um are, are about different characters and it's a different plot to this happy uh why why do you think and it's for good and bad, but why do you think some authors are drawn to more genre-based serial novels and others are like yourself and kind of mix it up every time? I think that they have perhaps different approaches to what writing is for them. So I've never understood uh, genre writing, but I think I never read genre writing when I was younger. So it's possibly it comes from a place of love, that if you really love detective fiction or, or you really fall in love with fantasy as a young person... Uh, you want to contribute to it and you want to be part of that dialogue. And that's just how you understand art. For me, I always think that I might not have been a writer. I might have been an artist or a dancer or a musician or anything. It depends on what tool I was given to express myself when I was a child. And for just, you know, historical accident reasons, it was writing was what I was sort of allowed to do. It was cheap and it was easy to do and nobody stopped me from doing it. So I just became a writer as a way of expressing myself. So my approach to it is far more psychological or it's nearly a mystical. Um, I'm doing it because it keeps me sane. And I think of it as an exploration of my own psychology. Every time I write something, I'm usually learning as I go what it is I'm writing and why I'm writing it and what compulsion brings me back to it. And that's why I don't plan ahead. So and that's also why I think the two years has been a good measurement so far, because it's a fixation on a single idea or a mood or a dynamic. And I don't want to stay fixated on it forever. And then when I'm finished with it, I want to leave it behind. 
So I think it's an approach. I suspect that's what it is. And sometimes you get kind of stick if you're writing, if you're writing literary fiction for being snobby or or pretentious. But the fact is, I am very snobby and pretentious about it. And I don't care if people think that's a problem. And I don't read genre fiction. Uh, but, you know, I don't have, it's just the way I do it. I just consider it to be a certain kind of thing. It plays a certain kind of role in my life. And uh, that that's quite sacred and quite personal, actually, which is another reason why publishing a book and becoming a public figure has been so interesting, because then you're read as a sort of read more cynically as, oh, she's trying to fit into this mold. She's speaking to this book that came out a few years ago or, you know, being a writer like a writer is some kind of a fantasy job people have or, or an identity they want to inhabit. Whereas honestly, for me, it was just this was how I. This was how I expressed myself when I was very little girl. And now it's just, I do it for a living. <laughs> so it's, it's maybe an approach issue. It's interesting there. And this is this is getting quite deep quite early on. But you say, when you were saying about, uh, you know, genre writers perhaps <clears throat> love the genre and they want to be part of it. They want to tell the stories in that genre, whereas for you it's different. <clears throat> I, I guess you, you've spoken about it's what you did when you were younger and now it's kind of all you know. But... Why start a new book? You know, when you're, it, I, I guess it kind of makes sense for a genre writer because they've got these characters and they want to see how they're getting on. But you've put one novel to a side, you're starting on a completely new one. Why are you picking up that pen again, as it were? I think with the second novel, um, there were things that I hadn't gone into the first that I wasn't finished with yet, or ideas and images that, that were still in my head. And it took me a while to figure out actually how I was going to tell that story because uh, I, I knew what the set of urges was, but not what the plot would be. And so I set uh, to a plot to allow me to express this, which simplified things and, and turned it into a story about one character. And now I'm done with that. But I find that more more things that have come out of it, more emotional states, more sort of urges and memories and belief systems and desires that still haven't been properly dealt with I'm now going to write a third book in order to work with them. So, so long as there is the sort of need to explore unresolved things or, or things I find interesting about life as I'm observing it, I'll keep on doing it. But the form that will take sort of changes. I mean, I like realist fiction. I like telling a story about a character or a bunch of characters that a reader can get to know. And I like drilling into that character's reality. And I'm more attracted to that than I am by plot. But then again, that could change down the line. It depends on how the story wants to be told. But what it seems to be for me now, what this happy was and what this this next novel is too, is I am kind of pursuing moods and states of mind that are difficult to explain and reproducing them in order to try and explore them a bit. So, so long as that urge is still there, I suppose, I still feel like I haven't resolved it myself. So I'll keep on writing. Let me just take you back to the day. You said that... When you're working in the morning, you know, sometimes it might be a 2000 word day. Other might, other times it might be playing with a few sentences over and over again to try and get them just right. How much does that bother you? Are you affected at all by what what you're writing on that day? Or is it more about the, the quality of it rather than the quantity? That's a good question. It depends. Um, I know that when I was first writing this second one, I was writing very quickly. And I felt very happy and excited about it. And then when I got to the end of a first draft, I didn't like it at all. 
and I went back and started writing it again and then the experience became much harder because it was more about quality than about getting the story out. So it's a phase thing. When it comes to the end game, when I'm doing the final edits and this experience with an editor is that you're going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with smaller and smaller grids of text. Um, I find that I'm trying to sign off on it and let it go and not care and be kind of ruthless about editing. But it brings up a lot of emotions at the same time because this is, you know, it's, it's, it's ending. And it's kind of, there's a sort of, when you put something out into the world and you let it go, uh, it has an impact on you psychologically. So the stakes become kind of higher. So at the moment, the state that I'm at is quite, you know, it's, it's a little bit jumpy, letting the book go. and It's a lot more stressful and I do worry about it a lot. I, well, as I said, I got a bursary to write, which meant that I committed myself to it full time. And that was, you know, in terms of my mind frame, that was very helpful because I saw it as, you know, I really need to succeed with this because I have taken a big risk on it, which was quite of a specific situation that I was in that I was able to do, which wouldn't apply to most people. But um, I made a plan when I started writing of short pieces I was going to submit to different journals in order to get confidence and to get readers. And I actually had, you know, like a schedule on my wall. I would say what I had submitted to and whether I'd heard back from them and should I check. And then when I had a draft, I just upgraded this and started doing it to submitting it to agents and publishing houses. And I didn't submit it to many. I think all in all, maybe three three agents and two publishing houses in the first wave. I got her back negatively from all of them, returned to the drawing board and spent maybe another couple of months on it. Um, And at the time I had like a casual editorial relationship with an editor in Dublin who was considering buying it, but didn't, but he used to give me a lot of feedback. So I was writing, rewriting with a kind of reader. And then when I had that rewritten version, um, I went on a writing retreat to a place called the Tyrone Guthrie Centre um, in uh, in Ireland, which is this beautiful house in the middle of nowhere. And you get to stay there with other writers. And I was having dinner with a writer and I said, who's your agent? And she just named him and said, yeah, he's great. So I went upstairs to my room and emailed my manuscript to this agent. And uh, I heard back the next day from his assistant saying, um, I, you know, this agent you sent it to is going to pass, but I'm going to branch out as an, as an agent in my own right in the next few months. And I would perhaps like to sign you. So that's how I got my agent. I ended up getting his assistant. So Matthew Turner became my agent because he graduated from being Peter Strauss's assistant to being an agent in his own right. So in the end, uh, after I had, I had been rejected by a bunch of people, I went back and rewrote and then it was accepted very, very quickly. And that is unusual, but... That's how it happened. It happened quickly. So I was signed then, this was January, signed in April, and then the agent sent it out and we got sold it by August. So in the end, it happened quite fast. And I think that's because the draft was ready, but it wasn't ready the first time. So my advice to people starting out is I always say publish small pieces if you can, short stories, excerpts, essays, to get an experience of that, because I think it's really helpful and it gets your name out a bit as well. And you get practice, you get feedback, you get some editorial experiences. And then the other piece of advice is wait until your work is is ready before you go for an agent and, and, you know, be pointed about it, get advice about agents and, and you know, don't, don't scatter gun too much. Uh, but I'm not great for giving advice if you're finding yourself constantly rejected, because to be honest, that didn't really happen to me. So it's not great advice for people who are having a hard time 
because it sort of just sounds a bit like, well, I don't know. I don't know what I would have done if I'd been continued to be rejected. I guess maybe I would have eventually retired the manuscript and started another one, but I don't know. You mentioned starting <clears throat> starting small and, and publishing short stories and getting stuff out there. I mean, well, that's happened with you with uh, with Love Many. I mean, it won an Irish Times Prize. Did it win an Audible Prize as well? Is that right? Yeah, it won the Sunday Times short story one. So 4,000 words... And it's just interesting linking it back to what you were saying about carrying on with your second and third full novel that you you want to explore an idea that you want to you want to pick apart a mood. What kind of how does that work with a short story? I I I I, I guess is the question. What is the purpose of 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 only exploring something through four thousand words rather than? Uh, got over a hundred thousand. Most of my short stories, I assume when I start, they're going to be longer or they're from a longer sequence. So I wouldn't often sit down and say, I have a thought or, or a compulsion, which is one short story long. I assume it's longer. And then it turns out not to be, and it turns out to just be a short story. So I'm usually surprised. So I actually don't really write short stories very often. I don't sit down to write them. They're accidents. And that's what happened with Love Many. So I thought this, it was part of a longer sequence. And then I realized that the mood and the idea behind the sequence wasn't really enough to sustain a book. So I cut this bit out and then rejigged it to make it into a short story. But short stories can be great in that way for exercising experiences or, or frame of mind or a mood or an idea because they're nice and short and they're self-contained. But if it's something with a lot of depth and you need to give it narrative con- uh, complexity, then I think a novel suits it better. And I do tend to like writing novels better or see myself primarily as a novelist. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'll get back to it with Neve in just a sec. Very quickly, if you're enjoying the show, if you've learned anything along the way so far that you think might help the way that you write in the future, uh, you can say thanks to us if you fancy. Get to patreon.com forward slash writer's routine for just a couple of dollars a month. You'll get our eternal thanks. You can also get some merch. You can get bonus episodes. And there is a way for your book to sponsor this show. It's all at Patreon. 
Uh, just a little goes a long way, I really promise. If you've learned anything over 160 episodes, anything at all that has slightly changed your writing, if, if you'd like to show your appreciation for that, it's it's patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Anything you can spare, I promise, goes a really long way. It helps us keep bringing you chats with the best authors around over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. It was a nice little surprise this week, wasn't it? A, a random routine. I think is what I'm going to call the new bite-sized bonus episode. I could call it bite-sized bonus. No, random routine. They're the new bite-sized bonus episodes that I'm going to release, I think, every Wednesday? Did it come out Tuesday? I don't know. I got quite excited and released that, maybe off schedule. It's going to be Tuesday or Wednesday. Keep your eye on your podcast feed, wherever you follow us, and you'll get just the routine. So we'll have a look back on 160 episodes. I will take just the routine, a random one every week. So we've got what, like four, three years? Probably four years by the time uh, of, of just different ways that people get things done. I think maybe that might be a little dose of inspiration because we do the routine on this show, but then we go off, we talk about the rest of the process and sometimes it's just good to remember how people sit down every day and get their words out. If you like that, make sure you are following us wherever you get your podcasts because we will bring you that random routine every week. Right, let's get back to it then with uh, this happy author, Neve Campbell. In, in this part, we'll talk about how easy it was for her to kill her darlings, why she loves language, so how she found chopping swathes of it out, uh, also, how she explores feelings and thoughts to keep readers engaged. And we pick things up. Talking about that very initial idea for This Happy. Uh, where did it come from? Oh, this is actually very funny and specific. I was writing about this recently. Uh, I sometimes do art writing and I was writing about this. So I actually have the exact moment. Um, I was staying with my parents in Meath in Ireland in a place called Mornington on the shore of a river called the Boyne. And uh, I was kind of doing a job I really hated. I wasn't making a lot of money. I'd finished my PhD and I was very clinically depressed. So I was on lots of different medication for depression and I couldn't sleep. And my life was just really horrible. And I was starting to think that what I'd always wanted to do was write a novel. So maybe I should just clear the decks and do that and see, you know, if it made me feel better. And I was walking along that river and uh, it was a most beautiful evening in summer. It was very hot and sort of overcast and a river, low tide, you know, it was quite smelly. And uh, I just felt really alive and really happy and really sort of full of this sense of um the beauty of the area. So I started writing about that and sort of revisiting my 20s. I was at the end of my 20s at this point. And, uh, you know, relationships I'd had and experiences I'd had that I wanted to narrativize using this, uh, this location as the basis. And that ended up being where a good chunk of This Happy is set is sort of it's kind of set in Turban Fekin, um, secretly, which is a place in Meath, although I don't name it. Uh, but I said it on the Boyne of the Boyne Valley. And uh, the landscape was very, very important because I grew up nearby and it's um, it's very beautiful. And see, on the Irish Sea, you're always very near the water and you're always very near the border with Northern Ireland. So there's a sense of po- political ambivalence about it as well and it's just very atmospheric and very beautiful so that helped to be the anchor ultimately was setting it there but that was I would say I would date the beginning of that book weirdly enough to actually that evening of walking and just thinking I've got to do something to make myself feel better and meaningful and I'm really moved and affected by this environment so I will just put these two things together and 
how do characters and, and plot come out of that? I know you said you, you don't kind of sit there and and then know what's coming next, but what happened between that initial idea of, of exploring an environment and your own feelings? What happened between that and then sitting down to type your first sentence? What else did you kind of? How did you think about what would ha- what would happen perhaps in your story? Yes, that it was a lot harder, and uh, my editor suffered a lot for this because the book began with this completely formless place, and then had to become a book. And that, if I say that novel has any major failing, the failing is those bits when it didn't manage to transcend, you know, being a book, which is just me sitting at the end of a river. But what I did set out to do was I developed a voice, so I made this character of Alana, who is like a version of me in my twenties, but more extreme. She gets away with more than I would have gotten away with. And uh, she is variously read as really uh, a great narrator and an absolute nightmare. It's almost 50-50. Nobody's in the the middle. So she her voice took over and that made things easier because her version of events and her, her sort of dishonesty and her appetites guided the narrative. But the other characters in it, there are really only two. There's really just two men, her first uh, love when she was younger and her husband. And the first one was based, modeled on a boyfriend that I had when I was in my early 20s, very briefly, uh, who I sort of blew up into this whole bigger character to embody a lot of ideas I had about um, sort of like you know, the relationship between a younger woman and an older man being patterned on a a daughter and a father. So I was playing with that idea in sort of variously skeezy and funny ways. And the second character, the husband, was just modelled on um, boyfriend of the time. (laughs) And uh, he was drawing out some of the issues in our relationship at that point. And uh, just exploring the idea of what would happen if we were to get married. Um, we didn't get married. We didn't even stay together. But he was kind of present there, giving me quite a lot of of, inf- of sort of details. So he came. This character that I based off this boyfriend came to stand for the idea of uh, of commitment and getting married to somebody and staying in a relationship and having a day to day reality versus the fantasy. So they were both be- be- sort of based on real people and then developed and developed, developed a lot and departed completely from real people and became in totally characters. But they they sort of provided me with that. And then with the second novel, I've gone completely differently in that I did start out with a large cast of characters who are not drawn in as much detail, who are more like cameos. So I've tried to move away from that intensity where you've really only got three characters uh, and sort of be a little bit more social in the writing and less intensely focused on, you know, a triangle. When you're writing a story that perhaps isn't, you know, thrillingly plot driven. I don't mean that in a bad, but you know what I mean? There's not car chases in this story is what I'm saying. Uh, You're kind of keeping the readers going by exploring someone's feelings and then what's happening to them around the time. How, how are you making that as a writer? How are you making that exciting and engaging and making the reader want to keep turning the pages? That's such a good question. Uh, I think you have to, if you're going to make your reader sit with this character, they need to find the character interesting. And I think for interesting, for me, a character who was nice would just bore me and I wouldn't be interested in them. And if they were just constantly a victim, I wouldn't be interested in them. So with Alana, because she is such a difficult character and uh, she's quite unapologetic and greedy and she has appetites and she really is very, very strongly motivated by sex. That was a big point in this book is I wanted to talk about lust, about female lust as a legitimate trigger for plot. 
so if you like that, I think you like the book because she tells the truth about th- about things. And I thought that was especially important as a woman and an Irish woman that she was going to be sort of wronged by a man, but that it was her fault. And I was going to play around with that idea of complicity and going looking for trouble. So it was sustaining that level of interest and that level of honesty about motivation and depicting a character who was difficult that I think was my hope that it would maintain the reader's attention because the plot was was really so thin. So that and the quality of the writing, you need to be into the texture and need to be into the atmosphere to like it. And that's not going to be for every reader. A lot of readers don't like that. So it does tend to be quite a divisive book, I find, in terms of feedback, which has been interesting. You mentioned uh, uh, quality of writing or the way it's written. Um, you have been <clears throat> You have been complimented for... Uh, sentences I know kind of that's that's all over the book one of the the, the big praises of the thing um how much do you think about that so how much are you thinking of the word that is coming next and and the beats the meter of a very specific self-contained sentence that's very important to me and in this book in this happy it was quite lyrical so I've, I've moved away from that style now and even love many doesn't really follow the same style but for for this happy I was letting the lyrical side of things rain and that the the sentences had to be kind of both deadpan in places and ironic and also very uh, florid in places. And I wanted the effect on the reader to be that sometimes you'd be really lost in the atmosphere, maybe against your better judgment. And other times you'd be quite coldly aware of reality. So I was using sentence structure to play with that. So it goes between deadpan to really lyrical And I wanted that to create atmosphere. So with the second book, it's a little bit less like that. But the preciseness of words is really important to me. I don't like to read writing where someone is falling over themselves to defamiliarize the familiar in a way that is really obvious. Because I see that in a lot of creative writing these days. And I think it's this emphasis on um, you must be lyrical or you must be original. But that's not easy to do at this point in human literacy. It's more, I think, important to be precise and sometimes you don't need to describe a room. You just need to say the atmosphere, you just need to name the feeling in the room. And other times you need to spend ages describing the room because it, the room is so weird. But there is a decision you have to make about does this serve an intention you have and you're not just doing it to show that you can do it. So it's really important, but it's also risky. Is it hard to not second guess yourself like that? If you or make it quite obvious what you're doing. I, I guess if you're making the decision of how much you're going to describe the room, uh, how much do you worry about whether a reader is, I, I guess, seeing through, for want of a better phrase, what you're doing, if that makes sense? Um, I usually follow intuition on it and I'm usually describing images in my own memory. So I go with that. Um, I don't worry about the reader, no. Uh, because I think... I'm not trying to, I suppose what I'm saying is I'm not trying to show off. I just want to do this correctly. I want to give you exactly the feeling. And then that's the point, because I want you to feel the feeling that the character feels. And that sometimes means defamiliarizing the feeling or, or describing it in an unusual way so that it feels new instead of obvious. But I don't think... 
like the, the kind of landscape I was describing in this happy in places is really overwhelmingly beautiful landscape. And in order to put that across, you know, I really needed to go to town on it because it was just so strange and so important and so a part of the story. So I don't worry about the reader seeing the strings. No, I worry far more about a reader. Uh, hmm. At the points at which I think I'm being a little bit lazy, I worry that the reader will see that. So convenient plot coincidences and things, I'd worry about those because they feel a little bit hammy to me. But I don't worry about the, the scenery or anything like that, no. I think it helped when I got an editor because when I was writing it myself alone, the point was usually to put across a mood and a feeling and an attachment and to explain why the character was in love. Um, but when I got an editor and I ha was being asked questions like, well, what's the the plot? What's the takeaway? What's the message? What's the argument? I had to reflect on it a bit more and start thinking, well, the argument is at some point you need to leave behind fantasy and live in reality. And then I started to edit in that direction. But that was really something that came later because I kind of wrote it very intuitively and self-indulgently. So again, with the second novel, with the lessons I've learned from the first, the second one is much more, I knew from the off that I wanted to write about a character who is unable to be, you know, fully committed to people around him, but is still reliant on people around him. So I was writing about social dynamics and that was more obvious. And probably going forward, I would have a better sense of what I'm trying to say before I start. I wouldn't write the same as I wrote the first novel. Kind of went into that one blind. But, but let's quickly talk about the uh, the second draft to this happy when you were told, okay, what is the, I guess, what is this trying to be? Um, how, how does that work when you're, when you're writing, you know, in a font with margins that, that makes things quite final, when you're thinking so precisely about sentence structure and words, how was the process of going back over it and, and trying to sculpt it into something that was perhaps more publishable? It was a, a large part of it came from how well I got on with my editor at Weidenfeld and Nicholson Lettuce and how much of a good relationship we have and still have in that she got very early intuitively what I was doing with the book so that she, she I didn't need to explain it to her too much. She more had a sense of how can we maximize this impact that you're trying to have. And a lot of the edits, it involved cutting things, which I often recycled as shorter pieces. So I was happy to let them go if, I, if they got a second life. And then I also wrote a lot of scenes. I got to add on a lot of scenes. And that was sort of enjoyable then because it was a chance to uh, revisit the sort of story. So one of my favorite scenes of the whole thing uh, which is where the character is waiting for it to start raining. And she's in this cottage in the middle of nowhere waiting for the rain. It's actually a relatively late scene uh, because the idea was, she, uh, you know, the question was something along the lines of, well, what's important about this part of the book? And I said, well, it's the atmosphere, it's the location, it's the emotions that are associated. So then the suggestion was, well, just, you know, have, stay in that atmosphere for a bit and see if you can put a, a, a plot onto it. So I just put this plot of two people who are waiting for rain and having a kind of an argument and the whole thing came out of that. So with a bit of narrowing it down, it's a bit like therapy. Uh, it became clearer. So that was how I, I was able to turn it from, you know, I didn't have it set in stone when I sold it. I was quite open to changing it because I knew that it was very um, plotless and that realistically a book needs a plot. So I was ready, ready to get some help with that. So I was open to it. How was it killing your darlings? If you, if you are quite 
thoughtful over language mm. how was it having to, to to cut swathes of paragraphs i'd imagine uh, sometimes easier than others uh sometimes it's about using the bits again in another part um it's hard to explain um what i'm working on at the moment i'm going to i'm thinking today about whether or not to kill a very big darling and i really don't want to kill it because i really love it but it's not you know it's not really working and I guess I'm just going to have to be ruthless and just cut it. It does pain me to have to do it, but I will. And there's no two, there's no way out of that, I suppose. It's part of the experience. You do get used to it the more you do it. Uh, but it also means that when you want to keep something and when you really are defending it, you know, you're being realistic and you're saying, like, I've thought about this. It does deserve to stay. You have to have faith in your editor, I suppose, and, and you know, know that they know what they're doing. And once you have that, then you're, if they don't like something, you'll, you're willing to perhaps accept that perhaps it's not working. Now this happy is out there and it's been incredibly well received and it's sold and, you know, it's been shortlisted for book awards. And how, how, how differently do you feel about what it is now than you felt what it would be when you first started writing? I think when I first started writing, I assumed that it would be an art book published by a small publisher and that maybe it wouldn't be linear and it wouldn't have a plot. And I, I, that was very freeing because I felt as if it didn't really, I was writing the kind of stuff I was reading and the kind of the writing scene in Dublin is quite open to experimental writing. It's kind of normal. And I'd, I'd done some performance poetry and stuff. So I felt it only became a sort of conventional novel later. So the difference to it now is that it is, it's a much more conventional novel. It's kind of a grown up book and it's more realistic. And I really enjoyed that. And I decided I wanted to write more like that. So I've moved in that direction away from the more formless writing. So I guess that's, it's more of, I've grown more coherent. The difference between the two is I never would have thought that it would be a commercial publisher or that it would be a big publisher or even an English publisher. And I never thought that it would be read as a sort of realist novel in the way that it is. So that was the biggest, the biggest surprise. But it, it, it evolved so slowly from being a, a bunch of monologues to being a straight novel that it, it sort of feels quite natural. Uh, and lastly, and I've asked this to other Irish writers that I've had on the show, and I'm always just curious as to what they think about it because um the irish you, you know very simply you 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 seem to be better storytellers than men than many other people um uh, and i mean what with the overwhelming success of of sally rooney at the moment and many comedians are, are irish because there's something about the lilt there's something about the way that you form and structure your stories where where do you think that comes from i think it's a couple of different influences. And I think that Sally really is an outlier, really, or the beginning of a new way of telling stories, because her work to me is feels very different to Irish writers that have gone before. In Ireland, um, there's a very, there's the culture is quite hospitable to writing for some reason. And it's quite easy to get published here. There's a, there's a quite a vibrant culture of, of writing, probably more than any other art form. It's sort of, people are kind of, have a relationship with it. And I think, I mean, going back to sort of like the big, big answer, that would be that when the state was formed a hundred years ago, writing was a big part of the idea of the identity. So you think about someone like W.B. Yeats, massive influence on the culture, con consciously influence on the culture. So it was built into the education system. And so people feel comfortable writing, maybe. It feels like a normal, normal thing to do. 
And so the whole storyteller thing comes out of that, I think. And uh, there is a sense in Ireland that the public culture is very much based on performing and being entertaining. So I think that's kind of a difference. If I've lived somewhere else, I find that, that kind of unusual in Irish, Irish people are very good at like sort of talking crap and they'll go on and on for ages and they'll perform. And it's just a cultural norm. So you should be able to hold your own. So that lends itself to storytelling. Uh, but what the difference with Sally Rooney is, first of all, it, it's like a woman's version of, of Ireland that's being um, put across less contingent on the heroics of story and more interested in emotional states. And it's not that there are writers that haven't done that already. I think of Colin Tabin, for instance, as an example of someone who's gone before doing something very similar. But there is more of a, an emphasis on the interior life and uh, the good life, how to live correctly is an, is an interesting concern she has. And I think I have as well. And that is influenced by the fact that in 2010, when a lot of the writers that are coming out of Ireland now, including myself, were in college or finishing college, because college is free here as well, so there's also that, there was a massive financial crash that um, bankrupted the country and caused a huge divide between one generation and the next. So the generation that I belong to and that Rooney belongs to are used to, first of all, being quite educated, being used to writing. Uh, I think it's significant that Sally Rooney was a debater. So there's this performance idea. And finally, um, just very politically crit critical of the status quo. So these kind of come together and make this this culture of dialoguing about things. So it's easy to know your enemy in Ireland. You know, it, first it was the church and um, now then it was the bank. And if you have a common enemy, then, you know, it makes for good. It makes for good culture because <laughs> you have people writing back to power. So I think that lies behind it in a big way. I think it's, it's a political event, personally. There are, are other reasons, but I would say that the burst right now is it's that generation. And that is it for this week's Writers' Routine. Massive thank you to Neve Campbell for coming on the show. Uh, if you love the idea and liked hearing about This Happy, you can get a copy wherever you're listening to this. It'll be in the episode notes and over at writersroutine.com as well. Uh, next week, we're chatting to Greg Buchanan all about his debut crime thriller, 16 Horses. It's going over very well. You can hear about how he wrote it next week on the show. In the meantime, make sure you keep your eye on your podcast feeds. We'll have another random routine for you. We had Anthony Horowitz uh, a few days ago. We'll have a new one uh, in a few days' time. Uh, give us a follow wherever you listen to the show. That way you never miss an episode. You can also give us a little bit every month, put it bluntly. You can also send a little bit of cash, even more bluntly, our way. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Whatever you can spare, I promise, goes a long way. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at writers pod there. And leave us a review wherever you are listening, as that really helps people who need the advice of our authors find the advice of our authors. And we will see you next week with Greg Buchanan on the show. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.